spending the last several uh, months speaking about foundational beliefs. What are the bedrock core beliefs of our faith upon which we must stand? We began a few weeks ago uh, in this series, Foundations of the Faith, to talk about our core beliefs with regard to Jesus. Uh, We mentioned that he is uh, God and that at the same time he is man. And I would like to take some of your time uh, tonight to talk to you about the fact that he is, in addition, our substitute. Jesus is our substitute. Now, you may be uh, right to ask the question, substitute from what and for what reason? Well, let me just tell you, we have a big problem, you and I. We have it in common. It resides in our very nature. We have this terrible inclination to sin. It's not foreign to us. It, It are us. This is who we are, so that when we sin, we're just acting out our human nature. Well, that's created quite a problem, as many of you know, because this isn't God's nature. Our sin has driven quite a rift between us and God. Think of it being a creature and yet at odds with the Creator living in God's world, having been given life by Him and yet totally apart from Him. It has to be that way. Just as oil and water don't mix, so too our sin and God's holiness cannot be in partnership. So we have a big, big problem, and we need a God-sized solution for it. We really can't come up with a solution for our sin and the debt we owe Almighty God, He being holy. And so Jesus came. Yeah, He's the Son of God, all right, but He came to be the Son of Man so as to be our substitute a perfect sin sacrifice, in fact, the only one who could live up to the standards required by God the Father. And so each of us needs a substitute, otherwise we're responsible for paying the penalty of our own sin, and that's an eternal consequence. So Jesus came to provide for us what uh, some of you know to be atonement. It's a little bit of a foreign word perhaps to some, atonement. And this means that because Jesus died as our substitute, he provided, someone put it this way, an at-one-ment. We were apart, us and God. We were not on equal terms, no partnership. In fact, we were adversaries. That's what our sin did. And Jesus came voluntarily, lovingly, and graciously, and fleshed to be our substitute and effected a kind of a peace between us and God, he being the bridge, he being the atoning sacrifice, effecting an at-one-ment now, so that those of us who know the Lord Jesus as our Savior and substitute are at one with Almighty God. Now, what is this atonement? Lest you be a little unclear about it, I tried to boil it down uh, to 25 words or less, though it's a big theological concept. But I think the atonement is this. It is Christ bleeding and dying in our place for our sins. Can you see the use of the word our two times in that little phrase that I simply uh, inscribed before you? He, he did this in our place and for our sin, he had none of his own. So you see, he's our substitute. He took our place uh, for our sin. And in so doing, he satisfied the divine requirements of God's justice by being our substitute on the cross. I didn't make this up. This is very clearly described in Scripture. Isaiah 53 verse 5 tells us quite clearly, uh, but he, it's a reference to the Lord Jesus, was pierced through 
That's a reference to his crucifixion 700 years before it actually transpired. He was pierced through, there's the word again, for our transgressions. He was crushed for, see it again, our iniquities, the chastening of, and now the third time, our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging he was whipped. We are healed. The broken, sin-sick relationship between us and Almighty God has now been healed because of our sin substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the cause of the atonement? Well, I have to tell you, I, I really racked my brain to try to figure it out, and I, I came up with this. Maybe you have something better, but I'm left with this. The only cause and explanation for the atonement is the love of God. That's it. No other explanation. You see, he wasn't required to suffer and die for our sin. It wasn't a demand placed upon him externally. He did not have to do it. He was motivated to do so by free choice because of his insatiable appetite to love us in spite of our sin. That's the only explanation for the atonement. Out of love, God chose to suffer as our substitute. Again, I didn't make it up. We find it in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love. Don't be mistaken about it. Not that we loved God. No, but that he, in spite of us, loved us. And how did he demonstrate it? Well, he sent his son. For what reason? To be the, can we handle that next word? Propitiation for our sins. It means to pacify. I have to tell you, our sin has aroused the righteous indignation, even wrath, of a holy God. Who can make peace? Who can satisfy his holy wrath? Well, only him becoming enfleshed in the form of his son, a propitiation for our sins. But the question could be asked, but couldn't God, if he was so loving, couldn't he have affected atonement in a, in a less gruesome way? It was a horrible thing that he uh, asked his son to do on our behalf. Crucifixion, a literally excruciating form of death, perhaps the most excruciating devised by humankind. Couldn't a loving God have done it another way? Well, the simple answer is no. There is no other way. There was no other way. If there was, surely God the Father would have applied it. Why do I say there is no other way but the shedding of blood to effect atonement for our sin? It's for this reason. Atonement involves much more than just forgiveness. Here is forgiveness. You say you're sorry for a violation, and the one you have offended simply says, don't worry about it. It's forgiven. Forget it. If that's all there was to atonement, there would be no need for blood sacrifice. But what's involved in atonement is not just forgiveness. Atonement also involves judgment. Why? For this reason, sin is the very contradiction of God. It is contrary to his holy nature. Therefore, in order for God to be true, consistently true to his holy nature, he must react against sin with his holy wrath. So people who object to the necessity of blood atonement, and there are many, simply do not understand whom God is. They think, like we, 
He could look the other way. He could grade on a curve. We could buy him off. We could dilute and compromise his holiness. Those who say this is gruesome and there ought to be no need for blood atonement do not understand the holy character of God. They wonder why is it that God couldn't just forgive and forget and get over it, simply contingent on someone saying, I'm sorry. Well, folks who think that simply do not understand that God cannot do it because he is holy and just and his holy and just nature requires that sin be punished. That's the way it is. Folks, if God refused to punish sin, he could not claim to be holy and just any longer. And so his holiness and his justice demanded punishment of the sinner, you and I, or of a suitable substitute in our place. Charles Spurgeon, the famous preacher of old, said with regard to our sin, if it is not punished in Christ for you, it will be punished in you for yourselves. So which is it, my fellow sinful people? (laughs) Do we pay for our sin ourselves, or do we accept Jesus as the substitutionary atoner for our sin? There are no other options. You see, the law given by God through Moses, the righteous law, the perfect law, the commandments given by God on Mount Sinai to Moses, first to the ancient Israelites and then by extension to all of us, the law pronounced a curse, a very clear directive, a curse upon the sinner, upon the one who violates God's holy law. And only Christ, God's Son, can eliminate the curse And so how did he set about doing it? Well, not by merely setting it aside. No, he took the curse upon himself. He dealt with it by enduring it in our place. This is so clearly expressed in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ has redeemed us, look, from the curse of the law. Don't misunderstand. The law is not a curse. It's a blessing. It defines God's nature and his moral character. It gives us guidelines and directives for life. It is the violation of the law that brings with it a curse. Christ redeemed us from that. How? Having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He did publicly. We think we have a general idea of the place of the crucifixion in Israel. And it was in a public area, very close to a bus station today. It was part of the Roman uh, procedure in this public form of execution to make it a deterrent. And so they did this in full view of pedestrians and crowds. And so the Lord Jesus became a public demonstration of the curse of the law, the violation thereof being put on his shoulders in our place. Don't you see? Uh, The Son of God became the Son of Man so that he could be our substitute on this tree, the old rugged cross. Folks, I have to tell you, if anyone here desires to enjoy a peaceful relationship with God the Creator... Something has to take place first. His wrath has to first be removed. There cannot be any peace between creator and creature. 
until his wrath is removed. And the only provision for the removal of God's wrath is the atoning sacrifice of his son. Christ Jesus is, make no mistake about it, the atoning sacrifice provided by Almighty God as the substitute for our sin. Romans chapter 3, verses 24 and 25. Being justified, legal pronouncement, Placed upon us. Case dismissed. Being justified. How? By merit? By vow? By promise? No. Being justified as a gift. Where did that come from? By his grace. Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Whom God displayed publicly as a. There's that wonderful word again. Propitiation. How? In his blood on what basis through faith i can't find a clearer encapsulation of the gospel message than right there in those two verses you see it god's grace his son's shed blood forgiveness justification propitiation contingent upon our faith in jesus and his substitutionary blood sacrifice his atonement for our sin in the Garden of Gethsemane, some of you have had the privilege of visiting there. We know the spot right there on the Mount of Olives. The Lord spent time, frequent time in prayer. But I think of this one occasion. The prayer was agonizing. He cried out to the Father and he said, Abba, Father, if it be possible, let this particular cup not be my destiny. Let it not be my fate. And the cup was the cup of the cross. He looked into the cup and he saw what it would cost him there. Oh, the physical agony was overwhelming. But I think more than that, the spiritual separation from his father with whom he had communion, unbroken, unbridled from before time, that was what he dreaded most. He valued fellowship with the Father, don't you see, much more than you and I do. That's what he dreaded most. And so he cried out, is there another way? Don't you see, he asked the question too. I know you sent me to provide an atoning sacrifice, to be a covering for their sin. You did this because you love the world, but is there another way? Is there a way for this cup to pass from me and the father's loving and gentle answer was no my son there is no other way and Jesus died for you and for me he is our substitute his blood was shed and he died somebody once said to create God had but to speak and it was done but to redeem he had to bleed I want to clean it up. I want to make it neat and palatable, civilized and more receivable. But I have to tell you, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. It has to be this way. Hebrews 9, 22. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed. Not with good deeds, not with church attendance, not with giving, not with baptism, not with saying you're sorry. All things are cleansed with blood. I didn't write it. I didn't edit it. I didn't modify it. I'm just reading it and believing on it. And I advise that you do the same. All things are cleansed with blood. And not only that, without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. I don't think it could be more clearly stated than that. 
People sin by nature. People, therefore, become the objects of God's holy wrath. The blood of Jesus Christ, however, applied to our lives by faith, has made those of us who once were children of wrath, think about it, now we're children of God's good pleasure. Welcome to the family of God. We who once were with, uh, at enmity with Almighty God now are considered to be his sons and his daughters. But I must tell you, to be honest, not everyone sees it this way. Uh, some have advanced other theories of the atonement. I don't want this to be a too complicated theological lesson, but I do feel like you ought to know not everyone sees the atonement this way. And so some have explained the atonement differently than I just did. So some have come up with something called, for instance, the moral influence theory of the atonement in which they say, oh no, you naive people, Christ's death was in fact not atonement for our sin. It is simply meant to as we look upon the cross, soften our hardened hearts, thus to lead us to better behavior so we're influenced morally by what Christ did on the cross. Others have advanced something called the example theory of the atonement. They too say Christ's death did not atone for our sin. It is simply meant to motivate us to exemplify the kind of life Christ lived and which we should follow in keeping with the life he lived. He's just an example for us. Others have spoken of the governmental theory of the atonement. By the way, you get this stuff really in churches across this country and in terrible seminaries. Please don't take for granted the bedrock upon which this church is based. Can you see the centrality of the cross of Jesus Christ? Please pray that we don't waver. We could. We could drift just like anybody. But we don't hold to the governmental theory of atonement here. That says, and it, also Christ's death did not, in fact, atone for our sins. It's simply meant to deter us from breaking God's law by showing us what could happen if we do. Oh, come on. You know what's deficient about all these alternative theories of the atonement? It is this. Maybe you picked up on it. Everyone has this in common. Each denies our total inability to save ourselves. Don't you get it? We do not need inspiration. We don't need motivation. And we don't need a good example to follow. Our need is for God's wrath to be turned away from us. Don't you get it? Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's a problem. But because of Christ Jesus, our substitute on the cross, God's wrath has been removed from us now and forevermore. So says Paul in Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Much more than, that means grace, greater even than all our sin. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Would you find me to be boastful and arrogant if I told you when it comes to me dying, all I have to do is die. 
Everything else is taken care of. Isn't that cool? I just have to die. I'm fully prepared. Knowing that because Christ is the atoning sacrifice for my sin, he's taken care of it all and the wrath of God has been removed from me. I don't have to settle the score with the Creator because it has been settled at the foot of the cross for me. When it comes to dying, all I have to do is get it over with. Isn't that good? I think it is. If you've taken Christ as your savior substitute, as your atonement, if you've taken this Jesus Christ, God's son, as your personal substitute, you have it all. Everything the father would bequeath is yours if you have the son. Reminds me of a story. There was a wealthy man and a rather famous art collector He had a son who was called up to serve during the time of the Vietnam War. He was killed in the process of seeking to rescue and lead to safety another wounded soldier. The father was given the news and grieved, as you can imagine, deeply over the tragic loss of his son. About one month after this happened, there was a knock on the man's door. He opened it and there was a stranger standing. They'd never seen him before. He was carrying a big package. The man said, sir, you do not know me, but I served with your son. In fact, I'm the one he died for. He rescued me, took a bullet directly to the heart and died instantly. He said, sir, Your son often spoke about your love of art and your marvelous collection of priceless works of art. I am no artist, but this is the best I could do. I thought you would appreciate this. Please open it. The father unwrapped the package, and it was a portrait of his beloved and deceased son. He he wept, as you could imagine. He was so grateful. He said to the giver of the gift, what could I give you? Let me repay you. And the man said, oh, no. You could never repay me for what your son did for me. Well, some months after this, this man died. And so there was going to be an auction of all his estate and his well-known priceless paintings. People, whole crowds came to make part of their private art collections what had been this man's collection. The auction began. The gavel went down. But on the platform was only one painting on an easel. It was this portrait of the sun done by the man who delivered it. The auctioneer said, we will start with this one. Who will bid? Who will have the sun? Well, the audience was stunned because it was an amateurish kind of a work. Finally, someone, I think, representing the sentiment of the whole group shouted out, What do you mean? We didn't come for this. Show us the Rembrandts. Show us the Van Goghs. That's what we came for. We don't want this. And the auctioneer said, Oh, no. The sun, the sun. Who will have the sun? Well, they were upset. They felt they were there under false pretenses. It's almost chaos. And then finally, in the back row, someone said, I'll have the son, I bid $10. It was the longtime gardener of the deceased art collector. $10 was all he could muster. He wasn't a wealthy man. They all cried out, oh, give it to him for $10 and let's get on with the real auction. The gavel went down. The auctioneer said, sold. 
And then the folks said, now let's get on with the rest. And the man said, no. The auctioneer said, it's over. The auction is finished. They said, what do you mean? He said, I couldn't reveal this to you until now, but when I was called upon to conduct this auction, I was made privy to a secret stipulation in the man's will which said this, whoever takes the son inherits everything. All the father's estate, all the father's wealth and riches, the son, the son. Who will take the son? Whoever takes the son has it all. Do you get it? Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left its crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. I beseech you, take the son as your substitute and you will inherit all that the father has. Lord Jesus, living Savior, Son of God, Son of Man, and our supreme substitute, our sin sacrifice, resurrected, ascended, soon to return, Lord of all. Thank you for enabling most of us to have you as our personal Savior. Oh God, our hearts break for others who are still yet resisting Please impress upon them, whoever has the Son shall have it all. May there be not one who leaves here tonight without saying, Father God, I want your Son as my Savior. Come into my life, Lord Jesus, forgive me a sinner. Let me be an inheritor of eternal treasures. Forgive my sin, adopt me into your family. Change me from inside out, I Take the Son. Lord, this is our prayer. Would you please accomplish this tonight even in the lives of some in the power of your Holy Spirit. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.